0: We're starting a new sermon series this morning called The Greatest of These, which is about 1 Corinthians 13. In that passage, Paul suggests that love is not simple and singular, but rather compound and complex. It's not a smooth, round pebble, but it's like a multifaceted gem with many sides. Or to change the metaphor, it's like a prism that breaks a simple yellow light into various rainbow colors. And so today we're reading 1 Corinthians 13 and then a story from the book of Exodus. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. And then from the book of Exodus, this story happens right after the first Passover. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh was changed toward the Hebrews And he said, what have we done letting Israel leave our service? So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready and took his army with him, 600 elite chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and his army, and they overtook the Hebrews camped by the sea. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them, and they were afraid, and they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to the wilderness to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt?' Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone so that we might serve them. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm. You will never see these Egyptians again. The Lord will fight for you. All you need to do is to be still. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight o lord our rock and our redeemer amen i've probably officiated at about 300 weddings in my career and i'll bet that i have recited first corinthians 13 at about 200 of them or maybe 250. and so when i plan a wedding with a couple i tell them that when it comes to reciting first corinthians 13 at a wedding there's good news and there's bad news The good news is that Paul's powerful, peerless, poignant peon to love is perfect for a wedding. That's the good news. The bad news is that because it's so perfect for weddings, you hear it all the time at every wedding you go to. And your wedding sounds exactly like everybody else's weddings. I'm finding that when it comes to the couples I'm, I marry, they're all 27, 28, 29, 30 years old, and I'm finding that these folks, these young adults, are attending five, six, seven weddings a year for their friends, and so they're hearing this passage all the time. It can get a little monotonous, but 1 Corinthians is among the most repeated and beloved passages of Scripture because... It has two dimensions, right? On the one hand, it's poetic and light and bright and elegant and enthralling. And on the other hand, it is heavy and dense and philosophical and practical. On the one hand, it's a poem, it's poetry. It's actually a prose passage, but it sounds like one of the sonnets of John Donne or William Shakespeare. That's the way it is on the one hand. On the other hand, if you laminated a copy of 1 Corinthians 13 and put it under a magnet on your refrigerator, your marriage would be happier. I'm not kidding. In this passage, Paul suggests, as I said, that love is not simple and singular, but compound and complex. In this passage, Paul pulls out this apparently common and daily substance called love and breaks it into its constituent elements. One day last month in the Leelanau Peninsula in Michigan, we had a substantial downpour. And then the clouds broke up and the sun came out. And the raindrops in the air like a prism broke the apparently monochromatic amber sunlight into the various stages of the rainbow. Huge, ginormous, double rainbow stretching out over Grand Traverse Bay from Charlevoix to Harbor Springs. It was stunning. All this blue and red and orange and violet. That's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 13 with his apparently simple concept of love. He's breaking it up into its rainbow colors. And for Paul, the first rainbow color is patience. If we love somebody, we will be patient with their failures and foibles. If we love everybody, we will be patient with everybody's failures and foibles. Because, now listen to this, this is important, because, as someone put it, because we must display to others the same patience God has shown to us in our creation and in our reconciliation. How could we offer to our fellow creatures less than what we ourselves have received? Ungrudging patience continually renewed. Yes? In other words, God has ignored or erased or annihilated so many of your mistakes that if God had not ignored, erased, and annihilated all those mistakes, but instead had written them down, and a laundry list, and put them in a journal, and handed it to you, you would be mortified. Therefore, show similar patience to everybody else. Paul doesn't quite say this, but almost. He says, it is impossible, it is impossible to be at once loving and impatient. Yeah? Peter Gomes says, patience is what you must have when you can't have what you want when you want it. And if you are a mother or a father, a wife or a husband, a brother or a sister, a daughter or a son, if you live in a family, you know that you very, very seldom get what you want when you want it. I think the book of Exodus is funnier than Jerry Seinfeld. I love the whole sprawling story including that passage I just read. The passage I just read is the first example of what will turn out to be a long, monotonous litany of Hebrew grumbling in the wilderness that will span out for 40 years. Here's what's going on. God has just recently liberated the Hebrews from a generational slavery from bondage in Egypt, and is currently delivering them to freedom and promise in Canaan. This is practically their first day of freedom. And so there they are on the Egyptian border, ready to exit Egypt. That's what exodus means, right? Exodus is Greek for exit. If you go to Greece, it says exodus above all the doors on the exit signs. So there they are. At the border of Egypt, ready to leave. In front of them is the Red Sea. Average depth, 1,600 feet. You can't cross the Red Sea without a boat, and they don't have a boat because there are thousands and thousands of them. So that's in front of them, the Red Sea. Behind them is Pharaoh's whole army. 600 menacing chariots hauled around by angry snorting steeds and piloted by brawny armored charioteers bristling with spears and built like no-neck linebackers bearing down on the Hebrews at 30 miles an hour. And they whine bitterly at Moses. Well, I see their point. I'm kind of on their side. I might be miffed too if I were in their sandals. Moses, they say. Moses, why did you bring us out here to the wretched desert to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Did nobody see this coming? Did nobody plan ahead? Look, we might have been slaves in Egypt, but at least we had three squares a day, a roof over our head, and nobody was trying to run us through with a sword. This kind of valuable discontent will, as I said, stretch out for 40 more years. But now, look at Moses' gentle rejoinder. He doesn't smash his staff against a rock. He actually will do that a little later, but he doesn't hear, doesn't smash his staff against a rock, just stays in his chair and says, don't be afraid, stand firm, you'll never see these Egyptians again, the Lord will fight for you, all you have to do is be still. In other words, chill out, would you? just give it a minute, the world is safely in God's capable hands, chill out. Told you before how much I love the characters of Estelle and Canute in Frederick Bachman's novel, Anxious People. So here's what's going on. Estelle is actually at a real estate open house with a bunch of other homebuyers. And Estelle and these other homebuyers are uh, becoming hostage to a benign and inept bank robber. It's too complicated to get into. But just suffice it to know that these... uh, Hostages slash homebuyers, along with Estelle, have nothing to do but tell each other their stories while they're waiting for the cops to rescue them. And so they're telling each other life stories. Estelle, by the way, is of a very great age. Canute died a long time ago, and she misses him so much. It was such a happy marriage. And so these hostages slash homebuyers get to talking, and the conversation turns to, conflict management and intimate relationships and Estelle says when Canute and I first fell in love we reached an agreement about how we would argue because Canute says after the first flush of infatuation wears off you're going to argue whether you like it or not and so way back at the beginning we had a sort of Geneva convention we laid down the rules of war We agreed that we would never intentionally hurt each other with our words and we would never argue for the sake of winning because when you argue just for the sake of winning, what eventually happens is someone wins and no marriage can ever survive that. And so I love that idea of having a Geneva Convention laying out the rules of war for when the first flush of infatuation wears off. And so then one of the other hostages slash homebuyers asks Estelle, so did they work the rules of war? And Estelle says, I don't know. The other person says, you don't know. She says, no, I don't know. The first flush of infatuation never wore off. The narrator Riley points out, there was no point even trying not to like her just then. So, if you live in close proximity with someone who is precious to you, but who is also just as shipwrecked as you are, you're going to need patience now and then. It is inevitable. Because patience is what you must have when you can't have what you want when you want it. This is an inevitability. And there are two ways to deal with this inevitability. The first way is to lay out a Geneva Convention, the rules of war, way back at the beginning when you're still in love. Never intentionally hurt each other with your words and never argue just for the sake of winning because if you do, someone will win and no marriage can survive that. That's one way. Lay out the Geneva Convention, the rules of war. The second way is to never get past the first flush of infatuation. I recommend the second way. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, says St. Paul. Love never ends. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.